We're down to the Sweet 16 as six days of madness has turned into a couple of Cinderella's and two number one seeds out of the tournament. The association and happenings on the ice have been super quiet, but I'll take a peek to give you the latest. More players on the move in the NFL as far as free agency goes. USA is back in the WBC final as it prepares to play Japan or Mexico. Was this a cakewalk of a schedule to get here? Kamaru Usman and Leon Edwards get reacquainted in the Octagon on Saturday as Edwards' majority decision was better than the knockout eight months ago. How's that possible? I'm pumped up to give you another shot in the arm of hard-hitting sports talk and opinions. It's all coming up, but first, this message. Jay Reels here, just passing by to send a brief reminder to please subscribe, rate, review this podcast, the Jay Reels Podcast, on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Luminary, CastBox, all of the major platforms that are out there, whichever one that you listen to, once again, just throw me a few stars, write a review, I would greatly appreciate it just to increase the visibility of this podcast with all the others that are out there, especially this one, which covers all sports in roughly one hour. Where else are you going to get that? So if you can go ahead and please do that, I would sincerely and gratefully appreciate it. And with that said, let's get it. The J Reels Podcast begins in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Let's get this sports podcast party started, all right? The J Reels Podcast. Why don't you wait until July 1st to make an announcement? What a disgrace. He can rack up all these numbers in October, November, and December. But what really counts is let me see this in January. The Sports Rebel Without a Pause, delivering fast-paced, jam-packed sports talk like no other. Listen, I got to call it as I see it. He is not a good player. I'm sick and tired of having to deal with the disappointment of this franchise. When does it stop? And yes, another winter that I can sleep in peace. Coming correct, direct, and in full effect. Let's get it. This is the J-Rules Podcast. Welcome aboard. What is happening, Michael people? Greetings. How are you? How's it going? How's everybody doing out there? What is the latest and greatest? Hope everybody's doing well, feeling fantastic, in excellent spirits, and why not? Today commences the spring equinox, I believe around 524 this afternoon, here on the East Coast, as we officially say goodbye to winter. Now, I must say, after all, it has not been a bad winter overall, as far as cold temperatures, snowstorms, icy streets, or whatever inclement weather that we usually get in the wintertime. That could be global warming, but that's for another podcast for another time. But here to deliver some fiery analysis, praise, and critiques with all that's going on in sports as this is the J Reels Podcast with your host, J Reels. For my first-timers, welcome aboard. And for those who have been banging with me going back to the very beginning, somewhere in the middle, or even as early as this past Thursday, I welcome you guys and gals back. And right off the bat, an apology from yours truly. You know, I love to come correct, direct, and in full effect, not only in sports, but as far as accountability and taking ownership of things. I know last week, the podcast universe had me turned upside down as my Monday podcast, for whatever the reason, got deleted somewhere in the middle of the week. So if you didn't happen to catch that, I understand it's a week late, but you could go back and listen to that. It's up in the archives. I know the description and the timestamp of where everything is is not showing up or has not shown up and unfortunately I was unable to save that document to recap everything that happened during last Monday's podcast because one more time for whatever the reason on Tuesday night I believe into Wednesday I noticed that the podcast has disappeared it wasn't 
on any of my feeds, even the old RSS feed that I have, didn't show up. So I had to reload it without a description. It's pretty much bare. It does say, please subscribe, rate, review, all the good stuff that you normally see. But without having the full body of what the podcast has to offer, other than the title, my apologies, it's not there. And I know that even screwed up with Thursday's podcast because for whatever the reason, the Monday podcast is now ahead of the Thursday podcast. So it is a little screwy. It is a little complicated. My apologies again ahead of time if you're wondering what's going on here with the order of these podcasts. But just wanted to put that out there. Just wanted to say I'm sorry. I understand it's a few days after. You may not even have felt it or even had seen it or experienced it. But again, I had to put that out there for those who may be wondering what the hell happened here with the order of these podcasts, especially as you got to the middle of last week into the latter part of the week with the new podcast on Thursday, etc. So I just had to address that. But now let's get to it. The madness that had started going back Tuesday of last week. Now with all those games in the book, we finally have a Sweet 16. But before we can look ahead, we certainly have to look and see what has transpired here over the course of this weekend. And as far as the teams who have impressed, the teams that overachieved, and of course the ones that were unimpressive and certainly bowed out, whether meekly or certainly did not put up a fight, as we take a look at that. And that's going to be the theme here, because I'm not going to go day by day, game by game, That's just going to take too long. I want to go more from a theme basis just to kind of get that overview of what has taken place and then have it go from there as to where the dust has settled leading into Thursday's matchups and of course into the weekend where by this time next week we will have a Final Four set up. The first team right out of the gate that was overly impressive, how could you not say Princeton? That was the second big upset that happened on Thursday, as well as Furman beating Virginia. And that was just a boneheaded play by the Virginia player trying to milk out the rest of the clock by throwing the ball from one side of the court to the other, thinking that time would expire. And then that burned them to where Furman hit a three and they were able to move on and knock out the Cavaliers. But for the Tigers to do what they did to beat Arizona, which I'm sure a lot of people had Arizona going to a final four, maybe even winning the whole thing. And not even out of day one that the brackets throughout the nation were blown into oblivion and the Princeton Tigers were able to prevail there and upset the Wildcats. And then on Saturday to match that and carry over to their win against Missouri, which they pretty much went going away. And the 15 seed, that's right, not 10, not 11, not 13, 15 seeded Princeton Tigers. They are the Cinderella of the tournament. And right now, the glass slipper is fitting nicely. I'm sure they're not waiting for the clock to strike 12. And right out of the gate, that is the one team that certainly has everybody on notice, knowing that, at least to this point, they were able to make it this far. And can they maybe stretch this to a regional final? That we'll have to wait and see. But they are public enemy number one as far as the big storyline heading out of the weekend and into the latter part of this week is what Princeton did. And then you also have to give an honorable mention and maybe even a 1A to Fairleigh Dickinson because for them, only the second team in the history of the tournament as a 16 seed to knock off the number one in Purdue. Even though Zach Eady, All-American for the Boilermakers, had very good numbers, was 21 and 15. But for Purdue, 
one more time, I can never trust this team or this university to win a big game or even any game for that matter when it comes to the calendar striking the middle of March. And what they did Friday night was just absolutely an abomination. I understand it's a different era now because it's not as if the number one seeds that we've seen in the past, the Dukes, North Carolinas, even the Kansas, and of course I'm going to get to them, Kentuckys of the world, teams that we know that are going to just blitz through these first two rounds. That has not been the case as we saw, what was it, four or five years ago with Virginia losing to UMBC, and then now you have Fairleigh Dickinson who also becomes part of a trivia question as the only 16 seed or the second 16 seed to knock off a number one and even though yesterday they were valiant and played very well before losing to Florida Atlantic and that's going to be the third storyline as I'll get to them in a second but for Fairleigh Dickinson to put up the fight that they did just to win that first round matchup that 116 and put themselves in the history books and then follow that up with a very good effort, but falling short, kudos to Fairleigh Dickinson, kudos to what they did throughout the course of this weekend, and listen, we would only hope to think that for a school as small as them, and remember, they had to get into the tournament by winning a Final Four game, which they did, and then for them to beat Purdue, it's almost as if they won a national championship, knowing that they beat a number one ranked team, albeit not a complete powerhouse of a number one this wasn't Princeton almost beating Georgetown back in 1989 or any other close calls that we may have seen throughout the years and we haven't seen many when it comes to the 116 matchup of course that Georgetown Princeton game comes to mind because it was low scoring Princeton had a shot to win the game at the buzzer before Alonzo Mourning blocked a shot and then you had what happened to Virginia there a few years ago but give it up for Fairleigh Dickinson and what they did kudos to them And then you have Florida Atlantic. Here's a team that was in the top 25 when it was all said and done. And in fact, I'd have to go back and look. But they were in the mix throughout the course of the year as a team that was flying way under the radar but popped up on your top 25 and you said, Florida Atlantic? No, not the Florida Gators. All right, the Miami Hurricanes, we know they've been there. Certainly not Florida State either. Florida Atlantic. So the Owls were trying to do their best to not only get themselves to a Sweet 16, but actually had a very good opponent. They would have played Purdue in that game, but Florida Atlantic, they were able to prevail, and they were able to thwart the upstart Fairleigh Dickinson team. And for them to get to this spot as a school, a university, not known for basketball, not known for pretty much any athletics when you think about it, And now they're on this stage as a team that, even though they're ranked ninth and not 15th the way Princeton is this year, but this is a team that is also wearing a glass slipper. This is a team that also can maybe turn some heads and who knows, get to a regional final and, dare I say, a final four. So when we take a look, just from those three teams alone, one that's still standing in Princeton, Fairleigh Dickinson pushing Florida Atlantic to the, maybe not to the brink, because Florida Atlantic was able to pull away late, but knowing that they were very competitive in the game and they didn't roll over from what took place on Friday, beating Purdue and just reading all the press clippings, they certainly were formidable and gave Florida Atlantic all they could offer. But then now with Florida Atlantic coming out of that on this side as a member of the Sweet 16, you can't help but notice and have them 
on your radar to think that this could be a team I understand could go up in smoke but stranger things have happened and with the way college basketball has been this year you just never know a couple of other teams that deserve some bouquets one is Tom Izzo of Michigan State and for what they did beating USC there on Friday and then yesterday beating Marquette and surprising them Marquette a two seed in the region and Marquette we know coming off of a Big East championship and riding high coming into the tournament well Tom Izzo and company and again this isn't a vintage Michigan State team and remember they haven't won a national title since 2000 and yes Tom Izzo is very familiar with these grounds he's familiar with getting into the Sweet 16 and regional finals and even Final Fours for that matter but he has not been able to get to the Holy Grail and I think that this team and like I just said 60 seconds ago with this college basketball season you never know but this isn't the type of team that I think could go far yes we know that the coach and having a guy like that on your sidelines is going to be huge especially when you're going up against teams that you may not be aware of or coaches that are in the deep end of the pool where Izzo's been there done that but I think that what he's done here to this point and especially beating Marquette not to say that it's his crown jewel or putting the big feather in his cap because we know he has plenty of those throughout the course of his career but this is a remarkable achievement because even with his reputation and even with his resume a lot of people thought that Marquette was going to be able to get to a Sweet 16 And here is the Spartans and Izzo standing tall and strong knowing that they have as good as a shot as anyone coming out of their region to see if they could get to a Final Four. And Marquette, I know that's got to be bitter. I know it's got to be just immensely disappointing. But sometimes when you go up against these coaches and teams that I get it from one year to the next, it's in flux. It's not a scenario where these teams are together for three, four years like we saw going back to the 80s, 90s, and maybe even into the 2000s. Now we all know they're one-and-dones and and transfer portals and things of that nature, but give it up for what the Spartans have done to this point as they move ahead to the Sweet 16. And then you have Tennessee. I have to give it up for the Volunteers because Tennessee is another one of those teams that certainly does not play well when it comes tournament time. They're a team that no matter where their ranking is and no matter how you may look and see where they're going to go or what they're going to do throughout the course of the tournament, they always seem to fall flat on their face. They always seem to not do well or overachieve when you get to this point. And what they've done here so far, all I got to say is give it up. And of course, they had to survive that game against Louisiana, which was tricky. And that was, to me, Every time a team that gets into the tournament, they're always going to have that one nail biter. They're always going to have that one white knuckler that's going to make you think that, oh, this isn't going to be a cakewalk. And that applies to any team, even the dominant team that has won a national title. They're always going to have that one game where they're going to sweat it out. And here was Tennessee right out of the gate in the opening round against Louisiana. And I'm sure you couldn't pick out any of their players in a lineup. And with Louisiana being a 13 seed and them having to survive that game, just winning by three... And then they were going to go up against the Duke Blue Devils. And Duke was coming into this tournament hot. Probably one of the hottest teams in the nation. Considering what they had done. Not only on the latter part of the regular season. But even into the ACC tournament. For them to win the conference. To win the championship. And then for them to get to this point. To go up against Tennessee. I thought that they weren't going to have a shot. And what did they do to Duke on Saturday? They just suffocated him. They just clamped down on the defense. They showed Tennessee how physical they were. They showed Duke a thing or two on the court to where Duke didn't have an answer for it. 
And that's why I was very surprised that Tennessee played the way they did. I understand that that was a game on Thursday, which was a wake-up call with Louisiana. And I'm sure once they got back to the locker room and had a couple of nights to think about it, they knew that they had to put forth their best game against Duke or they were going to be out of the tournament. And what did they do? Boy, they really showed who's boss there on the court and knocked Duke. And I had Duke going to the Final Four this year and certainly blew up my bracket from that regard. So Tennessee, I got to give them props for how they played and how they performed to this point, especially that performance against Duke on Saturday. So kudos to them and what they've done. And you have a lot of teams that I just mentioned that have been very good, that have been surprising, that have been just out of nowhere and has made this tournament to this very moment a very competitive one and a very good one. But of course with the good, there's going to be the bad. And the first team that's going to come to mind, for me at least, is going to be Arizona. I understand we could probably go Purdue because they were a one seed. And there are a lot of people, probably similar to me, that think that Purdue is not a big-time tournament team. That nobody was expecting them to maybe even make it to the Sweet 16. And yes, it is disappointing for them. And they were going to be a part of this segment. But I say Arizona for this reason. Because Arizona is a team that a lot of people thought that they had... Final Four aspirations, and I understand the same for Purdue, but I'm sure if you ask the college basketball aficionado who has a better shot to get into a Final Four between Arizona or Purdue, I'm sure a lot of people would pick Arizona. And for them, I get it, it's Princeton. Similar to Fairleigh Dickinson, understood. But Arizona was just inexplicably disappointing. And think about this. Arizona has now not won a tournament game in back-to-back years, going back almost a decade. And there's been a lot of these 2-15 matchups where you've had upsets and Arizona is now the only school to lose this 2-15 matchup twice. They lost way back in 1993 to Santa Clara. That was Steve Nash's team. And now this one. And we understand that Lute Olsen is no longer there. And we also understand that the late 90s Arizona teams has no correlation to this one. And I understand I like to talk about track record when it comes to these universities and the tournament to those who play well and do well as the ones who underachieve. But this one was just mind-boggling. I was very shocked to see this. As where Purdue, and I'll segue to them, yes, it is a shock whenever a 16 beats a 1, but I never had any faith in them to begin with. And this is where Zach Eady actually played pretty well where he was 21-15 and and the rest of the team was nowhere to be found. And for Arizona to put up the stinger that they did to try to get some length and a lot of people thought that they were going to be a Final Four at least get to a Sweet 16. And here they were not even able to get out of the first day. What more can you say? And this is why when we talked about this weeks ago how this college basketball season there should be no surprises. There shouldn't be a scenario where if a 16 beats a 1 or a 15 beats a 2 13 beats a 4, etc., that we shouldn't be up in arms to think like, wait a minute, how did this happen? But when we have expectations and when we see certain teams that were expected to do well, even Kansas, but at least Kansas gets a bit of an excuse. Only because they lost to Arkansas, that was nip and tuck at the end, Arkansas was able to hang on, and as we've seen just going back to last year, Arkansas made it into a regional final before losing to Duke, and remember, they beat Gonzaga along the way. So Arizona knows their way around the tournament and how to play well for them to beat Kansas the way they did. And obviously it wasn't in blowout fashion. It was just a one-point game. 
But we would expect Arizona to hang with Kansas and even beat them, and that doesn't come as a surprise. But where the other two scenarios, and especially with Arizona, just came out of nowhere. And yes, we could talk about Virginia, and that one was just a boneheaded play. I couldn't understand why the guard was just not able to call a timeout there, or maybe even the coach, Tony Bennett, did not relay that to his team to say, hey, if we're caught in a trap, or if we're unable to get the ball past midcourt, just call a timeout, in which they had one to burn. And for him to just heave the ball way up in the air, crossing midcourt, and then Furman to intercept a couple of dribbles and then a three-point shot later. And I understand that Virginia had a shot to win the game at the end, but Furman took all the life out of Virginia at that point, and they were able to prevail and move on before losing to San Diego State there on Saturday. But those are the disappointments that you see, and those are the ones that will stick with you if you're an alumni, obviously a student, or a part of that institution. But those are the teams, even Duke was very disappointing, but to me that was more about Tennessee and them bouncing back from that opening game against Louisiana than it was more Duke. But again, those expectations. When we look at Duke and how they got to a Final Four last year, I understand that was a swan song for Coach K, and that was a magic carpet ride to get to that point. But for everything that I detailed about how Duke played toward the end of the regular season, into the ACC tournament, and then even up to the final game, losing to Tennessee there a couple days ago, Again, it is very bitter. It does come to an abrupt end just like that. And that's what's great about this tournament because when you have teams that are either heavy favorites or big-time underdogs and somehow, some way they upset the apple cart and pull off the upset or a disappointing finish to a top seed, this is what you get. You get the old saying from the ABC Wild World of Sports, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And that's what the tournament does. And it's at at a breakneck speed. It's fast-paced. Those two hours or two hours and 15 minutes goes by in a blur. And if you're caught in the middle or if a team is hanging around and voila, that team pulls off the Cinderella upset or pulls the rabbit out of the hat, then all the life goes out of your team and has you wondering as you head into the spring and into the summer what happened our aspirations and championship hopes right out the window. And for a team like Fairleigh Dickinson, who was able to beat a one seed, or a team like Florida Atlantic, or a team like Princeton, here they are, standing tall, proud, and looking forward to the next challenge as the Sweet 16 is just three days away. And before I even get to that, as I mentioned, the tournament to this point has been excellent. Actually, I know I said very good before, but when we have... All the scenarios that I painted and put forth here over the course of the first 20 minutes or so, this is a tournament that you want to see a mixture of everything. Now, it's up to those aforementioned Cinderella's to at least be competitive. Because as we've seen time after time, when you get a team that goes this far, a la George Mason, going back to 2006, when you have teams get to this point, you want them to continue that magic carpet ride. You want them to continue to have that fairy dust that's sprinkled throughout their locker room to at least be competitive. You don't want them going in and then the next thing you know, within a blink of an eye, seven minutes into the game, it's 28 to six. And the Florida Atlantics or even the princes of the world have no shot at that point. They have to hang around. They have to execute, play smart and shoot well. And I understand that's basic and that's like, oh, 
No shit, Jay Reels. We understand that's how they have to play, but all that does factor in. And it's a scenario where we only hope that when these teams get to this point that they can continue to play that way and not just be happy to be there or know that they're in a regional semifinal that they look up at the bright lights and they say, wow, I have so many butterflies in my stomach that I can't even dribble, let alone shoot, and therefore they get blown out of the gym before you know it. So that's one of the things you have to look for with those teams heading into this Sweet 16 regional semifinal and of course Elite 8 once we get to that point. Because you want to have the good team or I'm not going to say the dominant team because you do not have a dominant team in college basketball as we know. But you want to have those teams that we know or at least we would think that they're going to be there at the end go up against the lesser known team and for that lesser known team to at least be in the game and at least to have a shot with about five minutes to go in the second half or at least be within arm's length of whether they're trailing by a couple of buckets or certainly not more than 10 points because anytime you get to double digits, that's what's going to get dicey. That's when the underdog's going to get tight. That's when they're going to try to force a pass or force a shot or try to overextend on defense. That's when it all could just blow up in their face. So as we segue into the Sweet 16, now I'll go more in-depth on Thursday when it comes to the matchups and breaking down how the weekend, I feel, will unfold. But as of right now, I just want to go through the calendar from Thursday through Sunday, or really Thursday and Friday because I can't predict what's going to happen Saturday, Sunday. And again, I'm going to save that for the podcast come Thursday. But here are your matchups as we head into the 23rd of March. Where here locally, Madison Square Garden, you're going to have a regional semifinal and final that's going to take place pretty much right down the street from me. Where you have Michigan State, as we talked about, go up against Kansas State, who's played very well here so far in the tournament. And then the nightcap there, and that's at 6.30. The nightcap, 9 o'clock, has Florida Atlantic, as I talked about them plenty, and Tennessee, which I'm sure both of those teams, both of those schools one more pronounced than the other, but for everything that I talked about Tennessee and how their plight has been when it comes to not being able to take that next step, well, it's in front of them starting Thursday night as they have the back end of that doubleheader at the Garden where the Spartans will go up against the Wildcats in the opener. And then on Thursday, 7-15, Arkansas at UConn. I haven't discussed UConn and what they've done. They beat Iona and a one Rick Pitino, who now Rick Pitino looks like he's going to be engaging in discussions with taking over the St. John's job. That's for another time. And then also beating St. Mary's along the way convincingly. So UConn has had a very good tournament and been very stout here so far and certainly could be a threat to make it to the Final Four. And that's all in front of them as they'll be playing out in Vegas. And then, just like I predicted last week, and not that I went out on a limb, your nightcap is a rematch of the semifinal Final Four game two years ago between Gonzaga and UCLA. Two schools that know one another pretty well. I understand the characters, the cast of characters have changed a little bit. No Jalen Suggs, but of course you do still have Drew Timmy there. You still have, I know some injuries there on the other side with UCLA, which you have to concern yourself and be worried about. But UCLA has played very well here in this tournament beating UNC Asheville and Northwestern. But when we take a look at UCLA and Gonzaga, I'm sure this is going to have pretty much a Final Four feel. 
I get it. It's in a regional semifinal. We would have loved to have seen this in a regional final or even further. But of course, that's not going to be the case. But you have guys who have been on this team and have been around, in particular, Jaime Hawkins Jr., who was part of that team a couple of years ago. And we shall wait and see for those first four games there to be played Thursday night. And then on Friday, we have four more games and, of course, the doubleheader there to close out these matchups to start off the Sweet 16 Final 8, you could say, or leading into the Elite 8. So you have San Diego State going up against Alabama, and Alabama has played very well. Of course, I didn't mention them because when we look at them, and even Houston with Marcus Sasser, who's nursing that injury, but also Houston has played pretty well. And you have San Diego State, Alabama is your first game at 6.30, followed by Princeton going against Creighton. And they've also been surprisingly well too, as Creighton has had a very good weekend to get them to this point. Creighton, they had a opening win against NC State and then beating Baylor, a team that I had going to the Final Four and beating them pretty soundly by nine as they have Princeton matching up against them. And then in the other two games, the first one being at 7.15, you have Miami going up against Houston. That will be 7.15, and that's actually going to be in Kansas City, the T-Mobile Center, where the other region, San Diego State, Alabama, Princeton, Creighton, is going to be in Kentucky at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville. And then your nightcap is Xavier, as they also perform well. And Texas, as we know, has not been a good tournament team. Yes, they've had their moments, but another one. Have not been able to get over the top And it's all in front of them. And that should be a barn burner of a game. Xavier, we know they can score. Obviously familiar with them because they play in the Big East Conference. And Texas, we all know that they're a mainstay. But now, can they take their game to the next level to push themselves not only to a regional final, but get to a Final Four and maybe, just maybe, come out on top as a national champion. And I'll get into those games a little bit more on Thursday, like I mentioned. Other than that, That is your Madness Recap, wall-to-wall college basketball over the weekend. I'm sure everybody's heads were spinning and brackets were being shredded, whether by hand or through the shredder, as now we could take a big, giant exhale over the next three days and get ready for the tournament to pick up where it left off there Thursday with that first game, 6.30, between Michigan State and Kansas State. I'm going to keep my high tops on as we're going to go through the NBA first and the NHL. And there isn't much to discuss in both of those sports, but there are some things to highlight. With the NBA, tonight should be the return of John Morant as they'll play the Dallas Mavericks. And as I talked about there on Thursday with Morant coming back and off of the suspension list, let's see what Memphis is going to do here because Memphis, they had a signature game the other day. And if you recall... When the situation with the Instagram Live video went down with him and the gun and how he's going to be away from the team, how I talked about that was going to be a huge focal point of their season because of the young coach, Taylor Jenkins, the young team that they're still being trolled by the Golden State Warriors as they have a hard-on for the Memphis Grizzlies. And understandably and rightfully so, going back to the playoffs last year and then you had Draymond Green clapping back at Dylan Brooks, and I know Desmond Bain has been in the news recently being thrown out of a game with an elbow in that game in Miami last week. But Memphis, we know that this was going to be, or knew that this was going to be a turning point because with Morant out, because of that scenario, and then for this team who thinks they've arrived, 
a team that has not won anything. Yes, they've been very good here over the course of the last year and a half. And now they had to show and prove. And what happened there over the weekend, especially Friday night, to where they had a 29-point deficit against the Spurs. And we all know the Spurs are dreadful. And for them to complete the biggest comeback of the year, where just, what, three weeks ago, the Nets overcame a 27-point deficit against the Celtics. And then two days after that, the Lakers had to rebound from a 28-point deficit in Dallas without LeBron in the latter part of the game. So... The Grizzlies said, hold my beer, guys, as they completed a 29-point comeback, which could set the stage for not only a good stepping stone with Morant coming back to the lineup and being a part of the team, but for this home stretch and into the postseason, because as we know right this very moment, they're in a rock fight with Sacramento for the two-seed in the Western Conference. As it is right now, they are currently tied at 43-27, and 27, identical records. And they're actually just three in the loss behind Denver, who had hit the skids. They actually were in town over the weekend where they lost to the Knicks on Saturday, but then beat the Nets yesterday in Brooklyn. So they are within distance of maybe catching a one seed. I'd have to look at the schedules to see where they fall as far as which team has the more difficult schedule. But I will say this. Both Sacramento and Memphis have two games in hand on Denver. Denver currently is 48 and 24. Sacramento, Memphis as I mentioned 43 and 27. So that's something to keep in mind. I'll do some homework there as we get to Thursday's podcast just to see if any of those teams will match up against one another here throughout the course of these final 10, 12 games left in the season. So that's something to keep in mind. And then I know the Sixers have been playing lights out. They've won 8 in a row and they actually have taken a percentage point lead in the conference over the Celtics, not just for first place in the division, but for the conference overall, as they are 48-22 and and the Celtics are 49-23. So think about that. Although the Celtics have a 3-0 season series lead over the Sixers, but the Sixers currently have the advantage in the conference and also two games in hand on their part because they're 48-22 where the Celtics are 49-23. So that's a race that we're going to have to pay attention to. And then the Sixers are just two in the loss behind the Bucks, 51-20, and 20, who currently have the best record in the sport. Other than that, that's all I have there with the association. So let me pivot and move on to the National Hockey League as I lace up my skates. And again, not much to really get into. Pretty much everything has stayed the same as far as the records go. Now, I do have to give it up for the Penguins, or I should say the Rangers, Because the Rangers did the Islanders and the Islander fans a favor by sweeping the Penguins who were in New York over the weekend on Thursday and Saturday as well as the Saturday showcase game where they shut out the Penguins 6-0. And I believe they scored six goals in the first period. No, one of these games, I know there was a bunch of games where you had some crazy scores where teams have gotten out of the gate real quick with just big numbers. But... Be that as it may, the Rangers swept the Penguins, so they put the Islanders in decent stead as far as the wild card race to where they were able to overtake them for the one spot. And that's what you want to do if you're in the East because if you're the second wild card team, that means you have the unenviable task of going up against the Boston Bruins and everybody knows how much I've extolled their praise throughout the course of the last four or five months. So the Penguins right now are two points behind the Islanders in the wild card race, the Panthers are one point behind the Penguins. And then you have the Capitals, who are 
Five points behind. I'm not going to look at the Sabres, Senators just yet. Although, you could say they're still in the race, but they have some work to do. And not only that, but both Buffalo and Ottawa have hit some losing streaks to where the Sabres have lost three in a row and Ottawa has lost five in a row. So who knows? Maybe this is their time that they're going to go out to sea without a life raft and say goodbye to any shot of making it into the postseason this year. But besides that, there isn't anything else to discuss. Pretty much the races have stayed the same and the teams have been in their same positions, whether it's Dallas, Minnesota, and Colorado out in the Central, Vegas, the Kings, and Edmonton there in the West, Seattle and Winnipeg are your wildcard teams there, Boston, Toronto, Tampa, which we probably will think that's going to be the case, although the Lightning are three points behind the Maple Leafs as we speak, and then you have Carolina, the Devils, and then the Rangers who have played well here, all separated by six points, but one point separating both Carolina and New Jersey for the top spot in the Metropolitan. And remember, Carolina does have two games in hand on the Devils as the Devils have played 70 games to Carolina 68 and the Rangers have also played 70 games as well. And that's pretty much it with the NHL as we count down these final few games, as we count down these final few days of March, we still have another 11 to go. But once we get into April and really get down to those precious few games, that's when we could really zero in on what's going to possibly take place in that final stretch before we get to the postseason. All right, let me put on my helmet and shoulder pads to get into a little NFL and not to really spend too much time here because after the opening salvo of the NFL business season, when we saw all the player movement then and you still have had some player movement here throughout the course of these last few days and not to break down every single detail, but the ones that really stuck out to me And I'm going to start with my Steelers. I was very surprised that the Steelers were able to sign a guy like Patrick Peterson. Now, I get it. He's 32 years old. His best days are behind him. I'm sure he's brought on not only for his playmaking ability, which he still currently has, but for him to have some presence in that locker room to the younger guys on the team, to him to be that anchor in the secondary, to go along with Cam Sutton and Akello Witherspoon. I don't know if those guys are going to be re-signed throughout the course of this offseason, but a secondary that is still relatively young. I understand you got Trey Edmonds back there and a couple other guys that you can rely on, but for Peterson to be a part of the Steeler Nation and who knows if he's going to be able to do any type of, I'm not going to say damage, I won't go as far as that, but to me, how I look at this signing was similar to when the Steelers were able to sign Joe Hayden. A guy that has a good reputation as a corner. A guy that has some playmaking ability. A guy who has been a Pro Bowl player. And in this case with Peterson, an All-Pro. So let's see what happens there. And then the Steelers also made a couple of the moves. Signing Isaac Ciamalo from the Eagles. A guard which they certainly most desperately need to keep Kenny Pickett upright. And to open some holes for the ground game. Especially when it comes to Najee Harris. So that was good, as well as a linebacker and a one, Cole Holcomb from Washington. So they needed a guy to play linebacker, and he was a starter there for the Commanders. And who knows what's going to happen there with Devin Bush, a guy that was a former number one pick and was on the rise before he wrecked his knee, and since then has not been the same player. Has had his moments since he's been back, but certainly nothing like what we once saw in his rookie year and the first part of his sophomore year where in 2020, the Steelers got off to 11-0 start, but he tore his ACL, and for whatever reason, just has not been the same player. 
So you have that scenario. The Cowboys, who do not make a lot of deals when it comes to free agency because they always have cap issues, but they traded with the Texans to bring in Brandon Cooks, another wideout, a guy with some speed. As we know, last year, they only had the one guy in CeeDee Lamb and didn't really have a plethora of receiver options, whether your name is Michael Gallup. I know they brought in some imports there along the way. James Washington from Pittsburgh, who didn't pan out. And even though they had a very good tight end in Dalton Schultz, but they needed some reinforcements there at the wide opposition, and they do so with Cooks, who's been traded left and right, L.A. to New England, formerly of New Orleans, coming by way of Houston. So he's been all over the NFL map, and now the Cowboys bring him on board to see what they could do there to fortify their roster at that position. And then you have the Bengals making news, bringing in Orlando Brown Jr. We all know that they need offensive line help. And funny enough, because Jonah Williams, their former number one pick, has requested to be traded because he's going to take over the left tackle position. So instead of Williams wanting to maybe bounce around the line or who knows, maybe even compete for a spot at right tackle, but he's asked to be shipped elsewhere. Who knows how that's going to play out? And Williams, who's had a track record with injuries, who knows where he's going to end up? He's a guy that I'm sure, former number one pick, who could perform well and play at a high level, but his health is going to be a big concern for the next team that gets him. And speaking of offensive line, Laramie Tunsil, the Texan left tackle, has become the highest paid tackle in the history of the sport. A $75 million extension, $30 million signing bonus, and it's $50 million guaranteed, which I'm actually surprised because you figured that there would be another guy who's made more than that. But he is the highest paid offensive lineman in the NFL, maybe in the NFL, not in NFL history. I should take that back. So when we look at Tunsil, we all know former Miami Dolphin was in that trade many moons ago where he went to the Texans in which they got a ton of draft picks. So you have that scenario with Tunsil being a mainstay on that Texan offensive line. And why not? Because you have a new coach there with D'Amico Ryans and you're going to draft a quarterback. So you know that left tackle is going to be prominent in the development of this team moving forward, which they're still going to have a couple of rough years, some growing years or some growing pains, I should say. But we would think that once they get past that two, three year threshold, and even though Tunsil is signed for three years, but at least in the interim, they know that they got their left tackle there for at least these next few years. And then you had Adam Thielen, the former Viking wide receiver, sign a three-year deal with Carolina. And we know Carolina is going to draft a quarterback as they made their trade with Chicago late last week or a couple weeks ago, about 10 days or so, as they're going to draft their number one quarterback. So to get a veteran guy, and we know Thielen is a very good receiver, Great hands, route runner, etc. So he's going to be a plus for the Panther offense come training camp and beyond. And besides that, you have some signings here and there. I know the Lions uh, signed Chauncey Gardner-Johnson, the former corner there from the Eagles. And the Eagles, they've actually taken a hit here this offseason as they've lost quite a few players. And I understand a lot of the NFL teams do. But for them to lose Javon Hargrave to San Francisco early this Free agency period, as well as T.J. Edwards, Kazir White, Marcus Epps, now C.J. Gardner-Johnson. And for the Eagles that are, of course, going to look to have to pay this quarterback, Jalen Hurts at some point, after the year that he just had being an MVP finalist and taking his team just points away from winning a Super Bowl. But the Eagles have been put on notice as a team that is not only taking a lot of hits, and also they've signed some players along the way too, 
But one to think about when we look down the road to the start of training camp and obviously the regular season as the team looking to rebound to get back to that mountaintop or at least close to it and then finally get over it with a Super Bowl title. And then you have Darius Slay. Talk about a crazy offseason for him or maybe at least a wild past few days to where the organization had stepped up to him to say, if you want to seek a trade, feel free, do so. And it looked like Slay was going to be another corner that was going to be exiting stage right. But instead, he ends up signing an extension and at the end of the day said that he's going to retire an Eagle after this latest extension, which is going to pay him handsomely, as we know. And talk about a chain of events that certainly were surprising. Two years, $42 million to stay with the Eagles. And even though he says he's going to retire after that or wants to retire an Eagle, I'm sure he's still pretty young. He's been in the league for quite some time, but who knows? Maybe when he feels that, and I quote, I plan on retiring as an Eagle. I'm not going to lie. When my time is up, my time will be up from here. So whether that means he signs another extension after that, Remains to be seen. And funny enough, as I'm thinking, because a lot of these deals, they fly under the radar. And there's just so many of them that it's just going to make your head spin. I know I mentioned Cameron Sutton earlier. But for Sutton, he actually signed with the Lions. So I knew that he was a free agent. And I knew that was going to be an interesting decision for Pittsburgh. Because Sutton had been a very good corner. Played a lot of slot. And obviously they weren't going to pay him. And we could look at Peterson being that guy that's going to fill that role. But we know Peterson is more of an outside corner than him playing the slot. Maybe he's comfortable with playing the slot at this point of his career. But Sutton is in Detroit, a member of the Lions. So that was a guy that I knew was on the free agent market. And then as I'm thinking cornerback and C.J. Gardner-Johnson and Darius Slay. And it made me think, wait a minute, didn't I see something about Sutton? And then, voila, the Lions were a team that he was destined and is his next stop along his football journey. And that's pretty much what you have with the football. Now let me turn my attention to baseball as I lace up the cleats and put on the batting gloves and batting helmet. The WBC has two games left, one being a semifinal game tonight between Japan and Mexico, and they will meet the winner on Tuesday night down in Miami against the U.S. of A., as they beat Cuba and have had one loss throughout this tournament, that one being to Mexico. Well, who knows? They may actually have a rematch tomorrow night in the final if it were to play out that way. But we know Japan is formidable and we'll have to wait and see what develops tonight down in Miami. But for the USA to get to this point, and I understand this may sound, I'm not going to say unpatriotic. It's just baseball people. This isn't anything that has to do with the world or anything that's super important. But for their pool to be Canada, Mexico, and Colombia. And I understand they lost to Mexico, what was it, last Sunday, 11-5. I get it. But could they have more of a powder puff cupcake schedule than that? Seriously. When you look at some of these other pools where, let's just say, the Puerto Rico, Venezuela, Dominican Republic. Those are three heavyweight teams. Now I understand you throw Israel in there. And I get it. You can't. Spread it out to the point because you have teams that are playing in Tokyo. You have teams that are playing in Arizona, Florida. I forgot where the other group was playing because you had these four different regions that were playing these games. But for the way these brackets and the way these teams are pooled, come on. The USA had a red carpet to this game. And 
They're defending their title, and good for them. We know they have the stealth lineup. They're pitching very questionable, to say the least, but they've made it this far. And I would think that they're this close, and whether it be Japan or Mexico, they're going to probably win the whole thing. Now watch Japan come out of nowhere. I shouldn't say out of nowhere. Japan has won two of these events, and maybe they're going to be the team that's going to swoop right in and take the crown back from the US of A, but when we take a 30,000 foot view on this, and again, this isn't anything to really sink our teeth into, it's just a baseball classic that for very few are wrapped up in, but I will say this, could there be a little bit more competition for the USA than just what they've gotten in their pool? That's number one, and to be honest, I could care less whether or not USA wins, Japan or Mexico. I guess it'd be cool to see a rematch if you want. There may be some that don't want to see a rematch. Maybe they want to see Japan go up against the United States. So we will talk about that more on Thursday as to how this all plays out. But you had a key injury minus the Edwin Diaz. And we talked about that the other day. In fact, Diaz is going to be out for the years. We know torn patella tendon. I talked about his injury on Thursday. So if you didn't listen to that podcast, you could definitely go check that out. But for... Jose Altuve to get plunked by Daniel Bard on an inside fastball to where his thumb was fractured. Who knows how long he's going to be out. You would think that if it's severe, it's probably going to be a couple of months. So as the Astros in another 10-11 days are ready to embark on defending their World Series title from last year, chances are they're not going to have Altuve in the lineup at least for opening day, probably for the entire month of April as he recoups from a fractured thumb. And who knows if there's going to be any consequences or repercussions down the road because I believe Daniel Bard last year was with Colorado and I think he's still on the Rockies. And now with the way the schedule is that each team will face one another throughout the course of the year. When Colorado and Houston does play, will there be any retribution because of this? And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't a scenario where Bard was trying to hit him. It was a fastball that got away. It was up and in. It was... Pretty tight, and we know that Altuve is a bit of a thing. So when these two teams do face off at some point, and I don't know what the schedule is as to when those two teams will play, but who knows? Whether Altuve's back in the lineup or not, I'm sure the Astros, although it wasn't Astros versus Rockies, it was Venezuela versus U.S., but there may be some players on the Astros that will have long memories to maybe be a little bit of payback towards Colorado when it comes to that. So that's something we'll have to keep in the back of our minds. But other than that, baseball, another 11 days before the start of the season, really 10 days when you think about it, a week from this coming Thursday. And I got to get brushed up on my over-under win total numbers as well as a preview, which will take place 10 days from today. So definitely looking forward to baseball as spring is just about officially here, as I mentioned at the top, around 524 this afternoon. And then lastly, we had a bout on Saturday in London between Leon Edwards and Kamaru Usman for the 170-pound title. And this was a match where eight months ago, Leon Edwards did face Usman to where he knocked him out with a leg kick. But in the post-match interview, he did say that this win was more satisfying even though it was a majority decision. Because the knockout may look pretty and sexy and great in the win column. But even he admitted that he did not perform well in that bout against Usman. To the tune of him 
getting that kick to knock him out cold and have him be victorious. Where this time around, I guess it was a little bit more of a clinic. He was able to not only match physicality, but I guess some wits in the process when it comes to techniques and being able to hang in there and also go the distance. Now, we all know that you're trying to have your opponent submit as early as possible, and that wasn't the case in this bout. And as the judges ruled it, two of them were at 48-46. The other one had it even at 47 apiece. So the rebound match for Edwards was a lot more satisfying and gratifying to him this time around than it was eight months ago. And for Edwards becoming the defense, the first time defending this 175 or 170 pound championship, a lot much more to be satisfied than the previous one, or at least the one in his first go around with Usman. Where this goes from here, I know Usman was gracious in the interview after the match. The fight again was in Edwards' hometown in London. Usman thought he won, but he did give him props as far as his preparation, as far as the way he battled, the way he fought. So at least he came across very gracefully in defeat and not looking to point fingers or not looking to the judges as to him getting robbed of what happened there a couple nights ago. And that's what you have there with the UFC and that's what you have here for the podcast. Another one just about in the books. As I like to say each and every week in closing, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast for just listening to whether it's your favorite sport, listening from start to finish, but knowing that you got to the end says a lot and it is never ever taken for granted. So for that one more time, I thank you. If you want to hit me up on any of my socials, you could do so at the following on YouTube at J reels on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, the J reels podcast on Twitter, J reels one, just a number or the old fashioned way. If you want to hit me up, the J Reels Podcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, suggestions. I'll be more than happy to follow up with you guys and gals. And then lastly, if you want to contribute to this endeavor, you could do so by going to Patreon. That's P as in Paul, A T as in Tom, R E O N as in Nancy.com slash the J Reels Podcast. Whatever you want to put forth will go 100% to the production, the upkeep of the website, the equipment to make this experience into the microphone through your earbuds or speakers that much more enjoyable, that much more pleasurable, entertaining, informative, etc. Because whether you do or do not know, this is what I love to do, people. Sports is in the blood. It's in the DNA, as I say, each and every week. And I'm not going anywhere as long as the good Lord has me here on his beautiful earth. That's right. Whether it's on Mondays, Thursdays, twice a week, eight times a month, how many times a year, I am always... Going to make sure that I come through with high energy, with lots of passion, fire, fury on my thoughts, opinions, analysis, critique, praise on anything and everything that happens on the world of the diamond, ice, gridiron, hardwood, golf course, racetrack, tennis court, boxing ring, octagon, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the J Reels podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beach, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond. Peace, love, and God bless everybody. Happy spring. And until next time on the J Reels Podcast, on the flip, baby.